Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is A Lot To Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because this is a podcast and you listen to podcasts whenever you might listen to them. Today, we're going deep inside the brain with Dr. Leighton Hinckley, PhD, from the University of California, San Francisco. He is a neuroscience Scientist research scientist. <laughs> Something like that. There's yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of sciences in there. Dr. Hinckley, Leighton, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Austin. Um, so let's get a little bit into what a neuroscience research scientist does. <laughs> how how does one uh, how does one go down that road? I mean, other than the obvious of, you know, going through academe and getting the PhDs and stuff like that. But uh, what, what gravitates you towards this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, so um, actually my background is in kind of more basic science, basic psychology and, and basic neuroscience. It's what I did my PhD training on. Um, my current position at UC San Francisco is to uh, is what's called translational neuroscience, which is kind of a you know, fancy term to unpack, but what it basically means is we use advances in basic science and understanding how the brain works to facilitate the diagnosis and treatment of disease, psychiatric and neurological illness. And what does the word transitional mean in this scientific context? So it specifically means translating our understanding of basic science. So if we understand how the brain operates at a more general level or a basic level, you know, kind of basic science, using that and applying it to treating uh, psychiatric and neurological disorders. Right. So when we spoke earlier to prep for this interview, I sort of made the analogy of you are both a scientist and like an interpretive artist because the brain is the last black box of modern science. Mm. If you got a problem with your kidneys, you go to a kidney doctor and they prescribe a set treatment that's pretty much established by medical science. Mm -hmm. There might be small incremental advances in the technology utilized or the machinery utilized, but ultimately we we pretty much get it. Stuff goes in the kidneys, clean stuff comes out kidneys. That's what kidneys do. But the brain... We don't know. Yeah, yeah, the black box. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the things that really drew it to me in the first place, like, is that it's such a challenging field to understand and study, you know, how how can we understand the brain, you know, and how how can we use that understanding to, in in a medical context? So you, you can get kind of very Cartesian about it and say, like, can we understand the brain at all? You know, is it possible for a brain to understand itself? But really the challenge is, is what drew me to it. And, you know, historically, the brain has been treated like a black box. You know, if you have a if you have some sort of symptoms, some sort of behavioral symptoms, you go to see a psychiatrist or a neurologist and you tell them their symptoms and they diagnose you with X based on what you're presenting. But, you know, over the past several decades, it's become less of a black box and more of a grayish box. Right. There's still a lot we don't understand, but, you know, as these kind of tools advance and uh, our understanding expands of the brain, gives us a better idea of what's actually going on, you know, what these conditions mean, how there are different subvariants of the conditions, you know, based on uh, the understanding of the anatomy and physiology of the brain. Right. So, and that is, that is where you are at the bleeding edge because we are finally adding metrics and physiology and analysis and chemicals and and hard facts and numbers Mm -hmm. to what used to be well i think that he is you know you know because that that and let okay let's talk through a then verse now let's talk through a you know before we had uh was it eeg's right Mm -hmm. eeg's brain ekg is heart right eeg before we had eeg's and stuff along those lines um before we could 
actually chemically analyze and watch the brain in motion in real life in whatever those uh, CT scans? Is that the one that analyzes? Yeah, there's a lot of them. There's a lot there's of a ton, them. Yeah. So let's talk about then now. Let's talk, what, 20 years ago before we could do this live and see the chemistry of the brain reacting live, right? Mm. 10 years ago, the scientist, the psychiatrist would sit down and say, and they'd open up their big book and they'd say, it sounds like he has X. Exactly. Yeah. You still do this. Mm -hmm. Let's walk through a mythical patient. Mm -hmm. You still sit down first and you go, it sounds like he has X. Mm -hmm. Right. Then what happens? Yeah. So like, and that's, and a still a lot of that is still done today. So like the classic way, if you had a, if you were experiencing something, you know, you, you'd go in and you see a doctor and you, you tell them what you're experiencing, what your symptoms are, and then they diagnose you with X. And, but again, like over the past few decades, as the technology gets better, there are more, uh, like applied ways of doing that and, and understanding exactly what's going on under the hood that might be contributing your, to your conditions. So like a classic example of that is, is Alzheimer's disease, you know, right. where, you know, if you have some memory impairments or if you're showing symptoms of dementia, you know, you go in and you would talk to your neurologist and they would diagnose you with Alzheimer's disease. And dementia and Alzheimer's are two different things. Yeah, they're related, but, but separate. Got you know, it. They're not exactly the same thing. So like, so the, a, a great example of how this non-invasive neuroimaging, actually being able to look at the brain and understand it, uh, really shines in the context of Alzheimer's disease. Is nowadays you can get a, a PET scan, and there are certain uh, radioligands that bind to some of the the stuff that builds up in the brain that causes Alzheimer's disease. The, the amyloid plaques and the, and the tau buildup that can contribute to certain variants of Alzheimer's disease. So it's moving beyond just the patient coming in and saying, I have these symptoms, because those symptoms can overlap in a number of different disorders. You know, you can have memory impairments. It could be Alzheimer's disease, but it could also be something else. Right. But if you express those memory impairments and you also have amyloid buildup in your brain, then you probably have Alzheimer's disease. So that's a, that's a very coarse example of how uh, translational neuroscience kind of works and, and how uh, kind of clinical imaging of the brain works. And it's only become more um, kind of multidimensional and has expanded over the decades. There's a number of different ways that we can look at the brain, how it interacts and operates to really kind of understand what exactly the patient is going through. That's, and, and each, I mean, it seems like each day you hear of a new innovation in brain science yeah. that you could not see, you could not see this thing. You theorize, I mean, the brain's almost like the galaxy. Yeah. I mean, it's as complex as the galaxy. Mm. What, I mean, there are more neurons in blah, blah, blah than there are grains of sand in blah, 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 or right, whatever, right. you know, you yeah. know, uh, it's always like, uh, I always think they built the Statue of Liberty just so people can measure things by how many statues of liberties it is, right? You're probably like, right. Like yeah. there's there's so many grains of sand or so many stars in the galaxy or mm. so many blah, blah, blah. And there's so many neurons and synapses and connections in the brain right. that uh, it's it's a universe unto itself and we're all walking around with one of them. Exactly. Our own personal universe, right? Because everybody's different. Like right. what makes you and I different are our personalities and what's causing those differences in our personalities is the biology, it's the brain. Like your brain is different from mine, you know, and and that results in our different personalities. So when you you move that towards a clinical perspective, you know, like the patient A and patient B, they could be suffering from the same thing, but their brains can be very different. And you manifest it totally differently. Exactly. So so the the artistic side, the sort of the gut reaction, I feel that this is what it is. And then you back up with the science, and you're like, but this doesn't look like that other case yeah. because it's, oh my God, you're needle in a haystack every single time. Yeah, it's, it's Because challenging. literally it's, it's an individual case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, it really is. And there's like certain rules of thumb that you could go by. Like if you take a disease like schizophrenia or if you take a condition like autism, there's some commonalities there, but you know, their subjective experience is very different. So you kind of need to, from like a an artsy perspective, you know, you kind of need to look at the gestalt, right? Like you need to right. take a step back and look at everything, not yeah. just the, the symptoms that they're experiencing or even, you know, you could take your genetics into account or family history, but also the anatomy and physiology of the brain, like what their current environment is, all of that contributes to what they're experiencing in their condition. So it, it begs the question, I mean, what is the point of classifying things other than it's just a convenient start off point, a yeah. convenient jump off point, because it seems like these things are unclassifiable. There may be 
bucketable, if that makes sense. You yeah. can put things in buckets, yeah. but then the bucket's got 3,000 different holes, and exactly. each each little stream out of the bucket, oh, wow. It goes into a different bucket. Exactly. You know, and then it's buckets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a, yeah. An infinite problem. So. Um, it is an infinite problem. So walk, walk me through a case study where you, you know, a patient comes in and, uh, and um, some of the treatments, both holistic and, and sort of the more ephemeral, like gutsy feeling mm. versus some hard science. Like where, where can we look at what's gone wrong with you? Someone comes in and say, all right, I'll give you an example. Um, one day my dad found himself in the backyard, just sort of walking in a circle and not knowing why. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the first start is to, um, and the way clinicians generally approach this, is to just kind of get a, a sense of the subjective experience of the individual. You know, why why were you walking around in the backyard? You know, did you have a bad day? You know, is this a, is this a regular thing for you? Uh, in order to kind of, uh, you know, find certain categories of symptoms or certain patterns of behavior that might fit a certain clinical profile. Right. And then, uh, you know, there's, there's ways you can branch off from that. You know, you could, you could take family history into account. Uh, and then with neuroscience, you can use neuroimaging to look at the brain. You know, if this, this patient meets a certain profile, if they're having, you know, some sort of, you know, dementia or memory deficits, you know, and then you can, and it looks like they're, uh, um, expressing the symptoms of some sort of neurological disease. You can have them uh, undergo a brain scan to see if their brain also fits, you know, their behavioral profile fits a certain con- clinical condition. Does their their brain profile also fit that condition? And so you can, you know, a neurologist can, uh, can uh, prescribe that for a patient. The challenge is that we're still really not at the point where, uh, even though we're working on it, we're really not at a point where we could come up with a uh, standard way for somebody to really get a, a good idea of ag- exactly what they're suffering from, and even in something like Alzheimer's disease. You know, there's no conclusive, real, uh, you know, surefire way to diagnose somebody with that. You know, they can, they can look very much like it. They can walk and talk like it, but you don't know, like, absolutely for certain uh, whether or not they have that condition. One of the challenges there is that these definitions of disease, like we were talking about earlier, are always changing and expanding. And, you know... Like, you know, what uh, a certain behavioral profile was as autistic many, many years ago, you know, they wouldn't be categorized as being autistic. They'd be categorized as, as being something else, mentally disabled or, or whatnot. So, um, so where we want to go, what we want to do is to be able to develop the tools in such a way that we have a better understanding of what, let's say, a patient with Alzheimer's disease or a patient with schizophrenia looks like, you know, what their anatomy and physiology is, what the timing and connections of the brain look like, and have them undergo just like a, a comprehensive assay or assessment of the biology of the brain, the same way we do comprehensive assays of the family history and the behavior and the symptoms of the individual. Right. So this is just yet another tool, another implement mm-hmm. that can be utilized by the practitioner to augment more of the subjective with the objective, but it's also still sort of just a a guideline. It's not a hard and fast, this does not create the rule and it doesn't always adhere to these models, but it is a great, again, jump off point for someone to start working on curing or assisting or helping the patient. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, if they, if they fit a certain profile, if they walk and talk a certain way, then there's, we know that there are certain treatments that work well. Let's administer it. Exactly. And see if it works. Right. Yeah. But the catch is that, you know, and that uh, those treatments don't always work for everybody. Right. And, and, you know, you have some people who have issues with compliance, some people who have issues with, you know, actually being receptive to the treatment. And that just speaks to the fact that, you know, again, everybody's different. Everybody's brain is different, and you know uh, that uh, makes it difficult to to treat in a certain way, and for people to be fully like one hundred percent receptive to the treatment. So. so let's geek out a little bit, okay? And let's geek out from your perspective mm-hmm. on some of these new tools that you're utilizing. Okay, uh, be as start technical and let's blow people's mind with the nomenclature and all that. But then tell us what we're talking about. Like you said, pet scans before, right? What's a pet scan? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So if I, if you start nodding off, I'll know. No, 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 no. I'm going to geek out on this and, and I will, I will jump in when I have no freaking idea what you're talking about. (laughs) All right. So, what? Yeah. So, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, immediately. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's start with... Uh, yeah, well, I don't know what a PET scan is. Yeah. Well, I've heard it before, but I have no idea what it is. Well, uh, let me start with one of the techniques that we specialize in in my lab, which is called a, a biomagnetometer. And it's a, a really cool, it's a pretty rare machine. And the way it works is it measures magnetic fields outside the head that are generated from brain activity. Because the brain is electrical. Yeah, exactly. And you know, following the right-hand rule of physics, whenever you have an electrical current, you have, you have magnetic, magnetic because exactly. electromagnetism, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. Too technical? No, okay. no, no, okay. no, no. I uh, think everyone should know that electricity and magnetism are the same thing. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, and if you don't, fucking read a book. <laughs> <laughs> put, a, put a link in, you yeah. know, the, yeah. the bio. Uh, yeah, and so that's what our machine measures. And these are incredibly small magnetic fields, like several orders of magnitude weaker than the Earth's magnetic field. So they need to be housed in these magnetically shielded rooms. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so it's really exciting. So the advantage of that technique, it allows us not only to look at what part of the brain is active, but also the timing of uh, activation in that brain. So when we talk about a uh, neurological or psychiatric condition, it's not just you have too much or not enough brain activity, sometimes the timing of the brain activity is off. And that's what this machine allows us to measure. Like either slow or fast? Exactly. Yeah. Like, because the the brain is a gigantic network, right? right? All brain regions are connected to each other. And a pathological part of the brain, it could be getting information too soon. It could be getting information too late. And that's what could be causing the, uh, the problem with the patient or the individual. So that machine allows us to measure timing of activation in the brain. It's like your heart is beating. It's just not beating right. Right. And the brain does the same thing because the heart is electrical too because those muscles are, I mean, that's how defibrillators work. Yeah. They apply electricity to the muscle to resync the heartbeat exactly. through electricity, right? Yeah. So the same thing is applying to the brain. Yeah. You're signaling too quick. You're signaling too slow. Your electrics are off. Exactly. Yeah. Heart's beating too fast or heart beating too slow. That can create cardiac issues. Brain firing too fast, brain firing too slow. Exactly. We've got some mental issues. Yeah, exactly. And in cases like an epilepsy, right? That's where you have an epileptic foci comes from, a part of the brain that's too active, that's firing too much, firing too fast. And so, that's, that's how epilepsy works. Yeah, exactly. You have a, you One know, part of the brain overwhelms another part. Exactly. And again, because the brain is a network, if you have a pathologically active part of the brain, it spreads. And that's where seizures come from. You you know, you have a part of the brain that may have nothing to do with movement that's hyperactive or firing too much. And then that, you know, spreads to another part of the brain and another part of the brain eventually hits motor cortex. And that's where you get the seizures in Because it hits the part that controls body motion. Exactly. And it, it originates nowhere near that. Yeah, Exactly. So, it's a chain reaction. Yeah. So that's why they used to cut the left and right hemispheres of the brain back but in the day. But that doesn't... It. Yeah. That, no. The, because we know that le- left and right hemispheres talk to one another. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a, we didn't know that until recently, by the way, right? Yeah. Yeah. For more or less, you know, over the past century or so, there's been... And kind of that, you know, how the left and right hemispheres talk to each other and, you know, asymmetry of the brain. That's right. really important, too. Where okay, so where do we get this misconception? Well, not misconception, just maybe primitive science mm. on the left and right hemispheres. Yeah, so uh, because lot- it, there is there is hard truth to it, like right, to like a, to a certain degree. Okay, yeah, to a certain degree. So uh, this idea of being like left brained or right brained, you know, if you put your you fold your hands together and one and thumb is on thumb, top, of it, yeah, 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 you're either yeah. creative or more logical, yeah, or you're you're you uh, what was it? Uh, you hold up piece of paper with a hole poked through it and what eye you naturally go to. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, when you talk about those types of signatures as being representative of like whether you're creative or artistic well or that's logical. stupid we yeah, know that's it's, stupid it's ridiculous but, but but is that is that hard part like you know since your right hand dominant is your left brain is that is that a thing is that yeah, a real thing that's absolutely that's real what thing. i thought yeah. so there yeah. are a few there are a few few hard and fast rules in neuroscience where that's applied so yeah. like laterality with respect to body movement and sensation right that's true uh, language is another kind of classic example, and that's one of the things we study in my lab. Is most people use the left side of their brain for language? Uh, it's one. Of, it's again one of those exclusive rules of thumb. You don't use just the left side of your brain, but there are regions in your left hemisphere that are specialized and evolved in our species for language. Right. And sometimes when that goes awry, like if you start using your right hemisphere, that can create 
linguistic deficit. So there's a lot of talk in the autism literature, in the aphasia literature, that if that laterality, if that shift away from the left hemisphere occurs, you can have some sort of speech disorder. Right. What's the deal with the people who wake up speaking in different accents? <laughs> like the people who have a stroke and then, and then, then and they, all of a sudden prego prego yeah. yeah, those are really rare cases it's, uh, nobody has any idea oh okay how that works. Yeah, all it's, right. a, it's a great question if you right. find the answer please let me know because uh it's a million dollar question but uh yeah it's it's you know it's it's really unusual and uh it's not entirely clear how that works. There's a lot of more cases in the literature where somebody wakes up in the morning, you know, they've had a stroke overnight or something and they can no longer speak or they can't understand what's Th- being spoken. That is to. much more prevalent. Yeah. So this this one is the oddest of oddest yeah. of odd. Yeah. And we really and people have a lot of theories as to why that's the case, but it's it's still it's so rare and uh, it's it's kind of hard to understand. Yeah, so, I mean But I love it. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah. It, it, it would be cool to one day wake up and be like, "Oh, governor." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cuz that's that's what the it's English that's right. what the English people sound like. Yeah, um, so, so left and right hemisphere is a real thing, but not as much as we ever thought it was. You know, that was um, when when do we when do we begin to dispel that? And um, and what's the what's the reality of it? How often do they talk? You know, so language and body motion and dominance, yeah, that definitely has a hemispheric split in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, what about the rest of it? Yeah, so they talk all the time. So yeah. even in a, in a lateralized function, like I'm moving my my left hand right now. My right motor cortex is driving that. But, you know, as the position of my arm updates in space, as I look at my arm and I get visual feedback from that, then the other hemisphere comes into play. So, you know, the right hemisphere is moving my arm, but it's also communicating with other parts of my brain. You know, the the parts and networks in my brain that are telling me to move my arm, the parts and networks in my brain that are updating that proprioceptive sense of space, you know, where my arm, you know, the position of my arm with respect to my body, position of my arm with respect to the visual field. So that's when my right hemisphere starts talking to my left hemisphere, left hemisphere spits back to my right hemisphere, you know, and they go back and forth. Got it. So it can, it can start or be, or even in language, right? Like when you're talking to somebody, usually you're, you know, there's, there's emotions and memories and thoughts that are associated behind you know, what I'm thinking about saying to you right now, that's not just coming from my left hemisphere. That's my left hemisphere receiving inputs from my right hemisphere or other non-speech regions of my left hemisphere. So the brain is in constant communication. It's a gigantic network. And that's, right. that's one of the things we're really moving towards in neuroscience is this greater understanding of the brain as a network, as a, a system that's, you know, not just one brain region doing one thing, but that brain region working in concert with every other part of the brain. So, right. Like if I do a two fingered point like this, yeah. I'm like doing it and my body's telling me to move it, mm-hmm. but also I'm thinking, Hey, Fonzie used to do this, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Where's that coming from? Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm like, I do this. I'm like, Fonzie. So somewhere yeah. in there, something goes because uh, that memory of Fonzie mm-hmm. clearly has nothing to do with my body saying, "Take two fingers and point like this." Exactly. Right? Yeah. But the Fonzie part of your brain is telling the, <laughs> the finger Fonzie, part of your brain. Yeah. You know, you're to, doing to the Fonzie. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah um, oh, that brought up. Uh, that made me think of something. Uh, so each 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 region of the brain is talking progressively with one another. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I read on the evolution of the brain is it's sort of, at least for the human brain, which may or may not be the pinnacle of brains on Earth. Mm. Uh, there's you know theories that maybe dolphins or whatever, but right. yeah. um, that the brain was evolutionarily additive. And if we go down to the deepest, darkest part of the brain, we can see the analogs to that in our evolutionary forebears. Yeah. Is that, is that a correct assessment, more yeah, or less? Yeah, it's a very correct assessment. Yeah. yeah. So uh, evolutionarily and developmentally, the brain is a hierarchically organized system. So like one part of our brain that's the most evolved, so to speak, would be our prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's involved in thinking and planning and regulating emotion. Uh, you know, creative thought, you know, like that, the things that we're capable of doing that other species may not be as good at, that's a part of the brain that's most evolved in that's our the own new, species. That's the newest part newest. of the brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Evolutionarily newest, evolutionarily more advanced. But if you go, and that's in the more anterior front parts of the brain. Right. It's kind of stacked on top of those phylogenetically older parts of the brain. Like right. The subcortical regions that 
you know, other animal species have that not only monkeys have, but, you know, birds have things that regulate, you know, heartbeat and breathing and, you know, and motor control, you know, those are, uh, those are phylogenetically older structures that are deeper in the brain. So as the, the brain evolved, more and more stuff got piled on top of it. You know, like a non-human primate has more brain, more cortex and white matter piled on top of it than a bird. So, uh, you know, that's that's the result of, of evolution and, and specialization, you know, as we... Allegedly. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Allegedly, yeah. yeah. Uh, Karen Pence might disagree, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Does she wh- listen to your podcast? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think she... Uh, uh, nope. Stop before I go too far. Um, what, what's 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 the baby part? What's the what's the oldest part? What oh, yeah, the, definitely the subcortical kind of the brainstem structures. Again, those structures that are involved in you know things like every system in the body is regulated to some extent by the brain, right? You know whether it's uh, like hormonal regulation, whether it's certain physiological mechanisms like heartbeat and respiration. Those are the those are the evolutionarily older parts of the brain. That's They're, the sheer existence. That is yes. like you just need that to exist. Exactly, like a shrimp or something like yeah, that. Yeah, just to, just to make the just to, in, in animals, mammalian species, just to make the body, you know, do its thing. Right. You know, those are the and again, those are at the kind of at the center of the head, you know, because they're the oldest structures of the brain. Right. You know, from an evolutionary perspective, and then you know, as species evolve, as they become more complex, as they engage in more complex behavior, as they specialize, there's brain regions that kind of almost get piled on top of it. Right, because you look at the cross-section of the brain and it looks like that. Yeah. You got a little squiggly part that's tiny in the middle yep. and then you got a part that wraps around that yeah. and then you got a part stacked on the front of that mm-hmm. and you got a part stacked around the back of that then you got a big part on top of it and yeah. that's in, yeah. yeah. So it just looks like this giant layer cake in the first place. Mm-hmm. So you can actually look at the brain and be like, that became that, became that, added to that, added to that. Right, yeah. And then and, and then you would, you would assume that, you know, the more layers that are piled on top, the more evolution evolutionarily advanced the species is, but then that rule kind of falls apart too. Like if you look at a dolphin brain, like yeah. generally like one of the rules of thumb in neuroscience is that the more, the reason why our brains are so wrinkled is because it increases the surface, surface area. area. Exactly. Yes. There you go. So, you know, and so you would think that, you know, the most evolved complex species are the ones that have uh, the most, you know, surface area. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, that's generally true, but it's not always the case. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, like, I mean, if you look at a dolphin brain, if you look at other species, if you compare like a chimp brain to a human brain, you know, the human brain is certainly more uh, convoluted and has much more surface area. But, you know, that's that rule of thumb. That's where the rule of thumb kind of falls apart. Uh Like if you just have more surface area, you're going to have a more evolutionarily advanced species. Right. So it's, it's, you know, and so. You have to have both, both more surface area and more complexity, but it's a balance between the two. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You got to use it the right way. So. Let's go with what our brain's using uh, more more of the cool technology that we're doing. Yeah. So so we can read we can read the most minute of magnetic waves that our electricity of our brain fires and then read uh, into the brain. You said something earlier about um, you'd have uh, you can read uh, certain chemicals that you inject into the system. Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what's that? Yeah, so pet pet scans. Oh, that's do the that? pet scan. Yeah, so, yeah. The, so in a pet scan, you have what's called a radio ligand injected in your bloodstream. It's yep. actually a pretty common neurological procedure for diagnosis of things like Alzheimer's disease, and then that radio ligand will bind to certain substances in the brain. You know, like in the case of Alzheimer's disease, you have these uh, radio ligands that'll bind to amyloid beta, which is the 
pathological buildup in the brain that causes AD. Right. Um, but you can also have, uh, you know, it can also uh, bind to other certain uh, substances. You've got different ones that target different exactly. chemicals. Yeah. And then you could scan it and see where the chemical is going within the trails. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where all the, the research in, in PET imaging is going, or a lot of the development in PET imaging. What's PET stand for? PET is positron emission tomography. So the, <laughs> that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So they, so they, cause they give off that, that certain signature that right, can be right. by the scanner. So, but there's, there's other techniques you can use too. So that's, that's a, uh, and there's a lot of research in kind of developing those radio ligands to get them to bind to different substances. Um, you can use uh, magnetic resonance imaging, which yep. is kind of the classic technique to get a high resolution picture of the brain. Uh, some of the scientists that we collaborate with at UCSF are uh, using or developing techniques to look at the expression of certain neurotransmitters in the brain. So if you have, let's say, the classic example is depression, right, where there's a, right. a deficit of or a putatively a deficit of serotonin in the brain. You can measure how much serotonin is in certain parts of the brain using certain scan sequences and MRI. So, right, because you know there's all these kind of neurotransmitters. I mean, how many different kinds does the body oh, have? Oh, there's, there's tons. There's, tons. Yeah. Hundreds. And each one does a different thing. Exactly. But then you're looking at the ratios of them. You're yes. not looking, oh, I yeah. get it. The ratios, where it is in a certain part of the brain, yep. you know, if there's a deficit or a surplus of a neurotransmitter, it depends on, it's not just across the whole brain, it's right. usually in a certain In system. a certain area. Yeah, exactly. So oh uh, my God. being able to measure that is really uh, effective and exciting. To, I mean, just the... The sheer quantities of data that you have to look through, like, okay, yeah, so serotonin, cool here, but if serotonin's there, not cool. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, and that's just one, that's just serotonin. Yeah, like, yeah, if yeah. You take, no, like, yeah. If you take everything else into account, like, when you talk about the sheer amount of data that we need to look at, like, there's, you know, we can look at the brain in a number of different ways using a number of different techniques, and really where the field is moving towards is kind of taking this multidisciplinary approach right. and combining that all together. And, you know, as the machines become more common, as the technology technology becomes more accessible, there's this uh, opportunity to collect these big data sets, right? Yeah, but that uh, that's a whole new challenge now. Yeah, yeah that's a, definitely one of the big challenges in neuroscience is to be able to, because historically a lot of these studies were done in, you know, small sample sizes or even case studies, you know, where you take a certain patient and you scan them. But since, again, the technology is becoming more accessible, there's a push to make neuroscience more of a big data uh, type of science, you know, the right. same way, you know, like meteorology or computer science, you know, and the rationale for that is to use some of these algorithms like machine learning, which depend on big data to be able to pull out trends from, you know, the neuroimaging data that were collected. And there's, you know, government initiatives like the Brain Initiative, um, which is a U.S. initiative to kind of facilitate collaboration and uh, open science, like sharing of data from different institutions and, yep. and collaborations across sites to really move neuroscience toward away from this kind of, you know, we look at a dozen people and see what their brain looks like. That's not enough. It's not enough. Yeah. Especially when you talk about the heterogeneity of disease, right? Like yeah. You know, patient A looks different from patient B. Like in order to really be able to pull out patient A from patient B, you need to be able to look at thousands of patient A's and patient B's, not just a few of them. And it prevents the, you know, you and your colleagues sitting down and being like, well, this looks like this. Well, I think this looks like this. Well, I think this looks like this. Well, no, once I have a data set of 100,000 patients, mm -hmm. boom, yeah. then, then those, those buckets upon buckets upon buckets. Yeah. So this is where the cutting edge is leading. It's not necessarily the, uh, the hardware mm. Like we've got our PET scans and our radio ligandometers. No, and, got it. Yeah, radio ligands. More or less. Yeah, radio uh, and um, and what was the first one you were talking about? The other cool one, the magnetoencephalography. The, the magnetoencephalography. Yeah. yeah, look at that. I just said it right off the bat. <laughs> magnetoencephalography. Nice. Um, still don't know what it means. No, I do know what it means because uh, Dr. Hankley explained it to me. Uh, so, so I was going to ask, what's the new cutting edge thing that you're looking forward to that'll revolutionize your science? And it sounds like you already keyed it up for us. It's this aggregation of we've got all the cool machines. 
but now we've got to analyze the data that they're they're presenting. Exactly. So the so is that the next cutting edge? Definitely. So yeah. it's analysis now. Now it's nuts and bolts, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's a, a you know the hardware is constantly changing and evolving and getting more advanced, and the software and being able to collab and kind of combine these data sets that's definitely advancing too. But yeah, that that kind of multidisciplinary approach, like being able to take a patient and be able to look at you know, not just their behavior and their family history, but to incorporate their genetics, the environment that they live in, their their brain anatomy and physiology, just to get a more kind of holistic perspective of what's going on. And then add into that 3,700 other people exactly. who meet the same profile. Exactly. And now you start getting the real vision. Yeah, yeah. And, and you get a better idea of, of you know, what what new type of bucket to put them into and then what new type of treatment to assign. But what really gets me excited about kind of like what's even beyond that is to make this more personalized, is to kind of develop this personalized translational approach where you have an individual that's experiencing certain system symptoms, has a certain history, they come in, you do all the brain scans, and then they, they have their own profile. It may fit a certain bucket, but it's a profile that's specific to them. And based on that profile, you can assign a certain course of treatment. So it's a kind of a more personalized approach to psychiatry and neurology right. than just throwing them into some sort of random bucket. And then you could take it a step further. You can, you, can, you can have a patient who comes in who has you know some sort of memory deficit. And you say, okay, well, we'll, we'll put them on you know, this medication to, you know, improve their memory or maybe stave off the, the neurodegeneration that leads to Alzheimer's disease. You can then track that in non-invasive neuroimaging. You can follow the patient, you know, because usually the way a clinician, you know, if they figure out whether or not a medication is working for a patient is they ask them, you know, how are you feeling? Like, is the right. medication helping? You can do that more objectively with neuroimaging. You can look at the brain and see if the medication or the behavioral therapy or whatever you're prescribing for the patient is actually working. So like one of the areas of research- It's I, a blood test for the brain. Yeah, pretty much. We've been doing blood tests for right. forever and exactly. you go, oh, your platelets are low. We know how to fix that. Yeah. But we've never assessed that to the brain before. Right, exactly. And, and then following up and seeing, you know, doing additional blood tests to see if the, you know, if whatever you think is pathological in the blood is actually changing to yeah. a certain degree. Yeah. So, so now we're just- Applying it to this melange of chemicals that we have in the brain. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the wow. Chemicals, patterns of activity, yeah. gross anatomy, you know, whether a part of the brain is atrophied or, you know, there's too much of that part of the brain, you know, it's really looking at that whole comprehensive picture, I think is going to be really beneficial for people in the future, you know, and, and then again, like being able to track it, like maybe, you know, because there's this placebo effect in medicine too, right? Yeah. Like you, you could go on a treatment. And the treatment could work, but you know, is it actually working? Is it actually doing something? That depends on the patient's subjective experience. You can actually look at the brain to see if it, if the medication or the treatment or whatever is actually doing. And our objective, exactly. And too often, neuropsychology, neurology, all this was all subjective. Yeah. How do you feel? I feel better. Did it work though? Yeah. We don't know. Or do you just feel better? Yeah. Because exactly. sometimes people just feel better. Yeah. Yeah, that placebo effect is strong right. in medicine. So. Right. Oh man, yeah. I can't I can only imagine it, you know? Like I uh I had thought I had a, like a little bit of a fever yesterday and I was interviewing a medical doctor uh-huh. and um to sort of joke with him, I dropped out an acetaminophen and ibuprofen and aspirin mm-hmm. and one other whatever a leave is. Uh what's a leave? A naproxen. Naproxen. Yeah. And I'm like, "Which one do I take?" And he goes, "Okay, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> He's like, they all do the same thing, fever reducer and pain reliever. Yep. And I'm like, okay. He's like, which one? He's like, take one of them. If you don't like it, four hours, take a different yeah, exactly. one, right? Yeah, just don't take them all at once. <laughs> That's the one thing you all, can't do. Don't yeah. take them all at once. But, but – that's how he thinks because he is, he is a clinical doctor. He's like, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. You guys don't have that yet, but it seems like you're sort of evolving in that, or or maybe you've always wanted to be in that sort of binary black and white of you know body medicine where you're like, nope, 
too much of this kind of blood cell, got to fix it. Here's how we fix it. Yeah. Ultimately, that's where we want to be. Right. right? We, we want it to be kind of like a, a, a simple binarized result. Yeah. Right? Like we want to, you know, and that's the reason why there are these big, broad categories of diagnostic of like psychiatric and neurological disease because, you know, people fit a profile, but they don't fit it perfectly. Like right. ultimately, we'd want to be able to say you have X, but there's thousands or tens of thousands of, of different X's out there and to definitively be able to say, you know, you have this condition, this is the treatment that would work best for you. And that's a, a long way off. But in order to in order to be able to establish that, we really need to be able to appreciate the brain as this highly complex mechanism that it is. Right. And have the tools to be able to explore the complexity of that mechanism. And I like that you are exploring it very much scientifically like we can break it up we can look at the chemicals we can look at how it interacts blah 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 which is i as far as i'm i'm aware of this is all just brand new yeah we had a feeling it did this stuff before but we never really knew but um where are we in brain science on like the evolutionary like heart medicines like oh cool we could put a new heart in awesome yeah are we are we still in bloodletting in the yeah, brain, pretty much, we're, we're all, we're we're all we're, leeches right we're now. In the, we're in the dark ages yeah, in the brain still. Uh, yeah, definitely. Even even at this cutting edge of technology, we're still we're 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 Galileo looking with a single lens telescope, and you're like, oh, I think those are moons. Right. We're nowhere near. No, yeah. The the James the James Webb molecular telescope or exactly. whatever the radio telescope. Yeah. 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 No, we're we're nowhere close. Like it's it's frustrating but also kind of exciting it's frustrating because as much as we know about the brain as as much money as and effort has been put into the research we still know very little about how the brain works we still it's still really challenging to come up with these rules of thumb about how the brain works the same way we have rules of thumb about how a uh, planetary object orbits a star or we got that yeah that's down we're yeah. done with that to, to a good degree you know not to not to, to hate on my astronomy peers, but you know, they, there's, but with the, the brain is so complex and individuals experiences and personalities, it, it, they're very complex. And right. that's, again, that's all represented in the brain. So when people talk about, you know, in 10 years, we'll have, uh, you know, everything figured out about the brain and, nah. you know, it's like, they, that's, that's hogwash. Like nah. that's, we're not even close. In fact, like the Hubel and Weasel were these neuroscientists decades ago that, uh, did a lot of seminal studies on the visual cortex, the parts of the brain that, that process inputs from the eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, their goal, they, they wanted to start with the visual cortex and then move through the rest of the brain. They say, okay, we'll start at the back of the head and then, you know, then we'll try to understand the rest of it. But they got stuck there just because it was so complex. And, you know, the more they learned. Oh, they thought they were going to bounce around the whole brain and figure the whole thing out. Yeah, and then just, they just went for one fragment of it and they're like, oh, crap. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're in way over our heads here. And there's, there's a lot of beauty in that, right? Like there's like, for every every question that's answered in neuroscience, it opens up like ten or a hundred new ones, and you know, and you just get, you know, you get you get involved in really understanding and appreciating this kind of beautiful complexity of the brain. That's and, I I mean this is this is this is fascinating beyond. Uh, we had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago or a week ago before we had this uh, before we had this interview, and I'm like, "This is going to be really cool. I think it'll be fun." It's been more mind blowing than I could ever have thought. Um, so, what what is the next other than the big data mm-hmm. and other than the advances in um, in technology? What what is what's the next frontier? Not in the mechanical technical sense, but what would you like, what perceptions would you like to change about the brain in the future? And what do you think is going to happen in the near future where people will be like, okay, we're going to look at the brain, not as X, but as Y instead. Yeah. Yeah. There's still a lot of misconceptions today about how the brain works. You know, it's like, which ones do you want dispelled? Well, you know, the 10% of the brain one is... Well, that, come on. That, no, no, no. <laughs> people, uh, people still think that, Austin. Do they people, really? They really do. Yeah. It's a, How can you... It's a why is that whole organ there yeah. if not... You only use 10% of your heart. I'm like... <laughs> you, know, you know, I think it solely exists just so Hollywood can make more movies about it. I think that's the reason why the myth is still there. Is Scarlett so that, Johansson, she could exactly. unlock her mind. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, what, what else? What, what was that one? 
That was a really bad movie. The Scarlett Johansson one. It was Luke Besson. Yeah, uh, yeah. Eve or Judy or it was like one yeah. girl's name, Juliet. I forgot. Yeah, you know, I try to I try to avoid these uh, brain movies. These brain- because I just end up getting frustrated, and yeah. I'm the jerk who throws his popcorn and walks out in the middle of <laughs> Well, uh, I'll give you a hint. Don't watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, you know. You, you have you seen that? I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read yeah, it yeah, too, yeah. So, yeah. Juicy you know. fruit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't, don't go down. Maybe just let that one lie. Yeah. Um, are, what are some other misconceptions about the brain that we want? Uh, there's, 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 a, there's a lot. And uh, one of the things I really love doing is, is being able to, you know, kind of dispel those myths and expand the knowledge, like really being able to, I think there's a lot of frustration for people. And, you know, earlier we were talking about buckets and labels. And I think one of the big advantages of those labels is that it gives people an identity, right? Like I have this disorder, I have this condition, and that makes it easier for them to cope with what they're uh, struggling with. You know? And also interact, interact externally too, exactly. because they can be like, I have blank and people are like, I got it. Yeah. I know how. I now know how to behave around you from your maybe erratic behavior. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you can build community around it. Like yeah. people, you know, I have autism. There's resources and there's there's community that you could, and and that's beautiful. And there's a lot of power behind that. But you know, kind of one of the myths that I think will be dispelled as as we understand the brain more is that you know, brain illness isn't just one thing. You know, there there really isn't there really isn't you know even though. Individuals with autism have, you know, similar experiences. It's not just one thing. You know, there's a, there's there's many different variants, and there's many different. So, you know, there's there's less of a community to identify with there, right? Like you don't. Not everybody has the same thing. Everybody has something similar but different, right? And so, like one of the myths that I think will eventually get dispelled is that there are these buckets. That there are, you know, as psychiatry and neurology start to integrate and become like just one field. You know, there's just like there's, you know, you don't just have, you know, autism. You have neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh-huh. You know, you have you have some sort of disorder of brain development that led to the condition. It may not just be one thing. It may be something that's specific to the patient. There may be some genetic signature or brain signature that's that's leading to that. But kind of moving away from these big, broad categories in, in mental health and moving more towards a more multidimensional understanding of, of just kind of the complexity of the brain and how that leads to the complexity of, of mental illness. There's not just... There's not just a dozen different psychiatric disorders. Right. There are thousands or tens of thousands right. of different types of psychiatric disorders. So, you know, and that might be harder for people because then they can't necessarily, you know, find a large group of people to identify with or, or have a label that works for them. But in reality, that's that's how the brain works, you know, because of that complexity. So I think in a roundabout way, you sort of said it. Psychology and neurology. Are, it is inevitable that they become one merged field. Yes. Yeah. Electricity was electricity. Magnetism was magnetism. It only took till later to figure out that electromagnetism is one thing. Exactly. These are these yeah. are these are two separate sciences that need to be together and will be together. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's the big bucket that we need to. This is the new bucket. Mm-hmm. The new bucket is neuropsychology is one one big broad. Uh, field exactly, so, exactly. Yeah, it's just that mental health is just you know one thing, and that's that's been beneficial for both psychiatrists and neurologists over right. the past decades. You know, as their advances in psychiatry, neurologists will benefit from that. As their advances in neurology, you know, vice versa. Psychologists, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so really those fields are kind of merging together. Like the, the classic adage of like. Psychiatry is the field where you have a, a medication to treat the disorder, and then neurologists get everything else. <laughs> yeah. like that's yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. necessarily true. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of effective medications that can help people cope with Alzheimer's disease. You know, and then like in psychiatry, they'll borrow from what's known in neurology. So really, the fields are kind of merging together and and uh, and kind of just becoming this one kind of neuroscience kind of mental health. Amalgam. I and I think that's the proper approach, yeah. right? Because we we approach everything else more or less like that. In exactly. At least our, our it's it's funny that I keeps calling like the body like standard medicine and the brain like different. Yeah. But it is, isn't it? It, it is. It's complex. It's, it's a it's, it's a total outlier. Yeah. You know, like 
I, we got we got the intestines down. Yeah. We pretty much we know what they do, right? Right. right. Uh, you know. Yeah. I, you know the heart heart a little complex, but uh, we can make robot versions of it now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You, you can you can build models of it, right? Do like you look, you could, do, you you could, look, do you look down on other? Uh, no. No. Because <laughs> because no, I'm the kind of guy who would like. <laughs> oh, hey, orthopedics. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's a, no, it's there's definitely like medicine is, and I mean, you know, again. They talk about the brain as being a system that... What know, about podiatrists? But, <laughs> well, you know, all right. We can look down on them because technically it's the feet and it's the lowest part of the body. So, but, um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, not just the brain is, you know, we talk about one brain region being uh, impaired in a condition and that's not true, right? The brain acts together as a whole system. But even treating the brain as some sort of isolated object isn't true either like the brain is part of the body and you know and there are hormones and there are you know different parts of the uh uh different systems in the body that interact with the right because they're too. generating the different hormones yeah, like exactly. this is made by this organ mm-hmm. and this is made by that organ yeah exactly yeah so that oh so that God. all feeds back into Jesus the brain Christ. like i know I'm sorry, Austin. <laughs> I was just—I was just getting myself nice and organized, and I was building myself a taxonomy. And then yeah. you're like, "Oh, oh!" But by the way, other stuff comes to the pancreas. I'm like, "God damn it, pancreas!" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's yeah. So really, it shouldn't be like as cool as the brain is, and as as exciting and and poorly understood as it is. It's really just one part of a larger system that of, that it affects that are affected by it. You know, like one of the disorders I study is called uh, dystonia. It's a it's a movement disorder where um, parts of the brain overwire. So if you're like, and it happens, what in, does overwire mean? So, uh, like, let me give you an example. So, like, let's say you're a professional musician, right? Like, you can play piano for like eight to ten hours a day. Yeah. You know, you're you're doing those movements over and over again. You're practicing over and over again. And one of the rules of thumb of the brain is that neurons that fire together wire together, that heavy in principle, right? So, you know, as those parts of the brain fire and fire and fire over and over again, they get more connected, their receptive fields expand, and then you know, more, resources, more resources are devoted to that part of the brain. And then those parts of the brain start running into each other. So what you end up having is they get these, these contractions, their hands start seizing up. Uh-huh. And so... And so, you know, and so that's a result of their muscles, too much going on in their muscles, kind of feeding back into their brain, their developing experience, they're expanding those parts of the brain. But then that could be disadvantageous because those parts of the brain start running into each other. Yeah. And then they get these contractions and they think it's, you know, often they'll think they're just, you know, kind of freaking out about it, like it's an anxiety thing. But it's, it's not. actually not. No, it's it's a result of of, of repetitive overuse Stop. of the hands. Go yeah. out, do exactly. something else. Do something else. Yeah. Or, you know, do it differently. So the way... Uh, one of the treatments for this is through physical therapy to get them to position their body in a different way. Which is still refiring rewires. Exactly. You're refiring to create new rewiring. Exactly. So you got to balance it out. So physical, oh my God. You can't just do one thing over and over again. So like right-handed guitarists will, will relearn with their left hand, you know, is to get the, you know, the left side of the brain to, ease up a little bit and, you know, kind of become a little bit more balanced. So I'm so happy. I barely practiced ever. <laughs> You're doing your parents a favor. Uh, no, I mean, I played, uh, I played classical music all the way through college, yeah. but I just chose the easiest instruments and barely practiced. See, there you go. That's a smart move. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, you know what kids don't try exactly because it messes up your brain and then you rewire overwiring. <laughs> right. You, you know, some kid is listening to this podcast right now and they're going to tell their parents, you know, mom, dad, I can't practice today because I don't want dystonia. So. Yeah. Um, well, let's leave it on a, uh, on a helpful note. Um, do you, do you have resources out there that anyone who might be encountering what they think is a neurological program where problem where they could, uh, go to? So at least we could leave people with some advice. Yeah, absolutely. UCSF has a lot of great resources, you know, whether we're, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, psychiatry department at UCSF is really great. Neurology department at UCSF is really great. Their websites are, uh, really helpful, and there's there's resources, information on those websites, and people to contact if you know you're having a hard time or you know, feel like uh, you might be suffering from something. Uh, so, and there's and those departments at UCSF are 
you know, rapidly expanding. You know, there's new psychiatry and neurology units being built at UCSF and, you know, faculties expanding and more specializations. So uh, that would be, on a personal level, kind of like a good resource. And I'm sure the major university in your city has a uh, an analogous department as well. So uh, yeah. look, at, look at your major universities nearby your cities and uh, check out their neuropsychology departments if you feel like you're having a hard time. And uh, Dr. Leighton Hinckley, this has been incredibly informative. We've gone into the brain and yet we still know nothing. <laughs> exactly. What a Sisyphean effort. Yeah, yeah so. right. I, I, got, I got that boulder, baby. <laughs> Dr. Hinckley, thank you so much. Thank you, Austin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.